Pastor John, I'm here in Jerusalem, Israel, uh, on the Mount of Olives at the Garden of Gethsemane, walking through some of the most incredible uh, olive trees you've ever seen in your life. It was in this place that Christ experienced the fullness of God's plan. Part of that plan was that God was pouring out his wrath upon Jesus in order to bring peace to us. It was in that place that Jesus prayed that familiar prayer. Lord, if you'll deliver me from this cup, that's what I want, but not what I want to be done. What you need to be done is what I want. And ultimately, I don't know if you've ever considered that that's the universal prayer that regardless of where people are in the world community, they pray, God, if it's possible, take me out of this situation. Yet the fullness of that prayer is prayed when we can say, God, not what I want, what you want to be done. You know, really as a believer, that's what it all comes down to. I think that really we've arrived at the place of maturity where we're able to say, God, don't just deliver me, but God, whatever you want done is what I want done in my life. If we could ever get to that place, what kind of fullness would there be and what kind of trust would there be? And ultimately, what could God do in our life if we trusted him enough to say to him, God, what you want to be done is what I want to be done. Would you be willing to lay it all down, place yourself in his hands and trust him with everything? really believing that God you're good and that ultimately if you had your way in my life everything will turn out okay I don't know if we could ever just come to that place in him where we trusted him that way I wonder what the possibilities would be I wonder what God could do with us I wonder what the fullness of our joy would be like if we could ever come to the place where nothing that happened to us can the enemy win we recognize that anything that happens to us God is gonna have his will and his way and it's going to be good what a place to live our lives from. What, what an opportunity to be able to experience God in a new way. That's what really this whole thing is about. It's trusting God. It's placing ourselves in His hands. It's allowing Him to have His work and His way inside of us because we believe that He's good and we believe ultimately this is true, that all things work together for good to them that know and love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. Wow. Can you imagine to trust God that way? Welcome, glad that you're here. Let me go ahead and call all of our services in over at Highlands Ranch and Castle Rock and Lakewood. Those folks that are live streaming us right now and everybody that'll be listening in the next couple of weeks, welcome to the JFC family and we're glad that you are tuning in and a part of it. You were handed notes on your way in and if you'll get those out in just a second, we will jump into the message. I've got one, um, one little item uh, that I think you'll be excited to hear and something that I'm excited to announce um, probably the best way to do it would be to give you an example. When I started out in ministry, um, this is my 26th full-time year uh, in, in ministry. Um, when I started out a long time ago, had um, an illustration that was brought to me, and it was said this way. A professor took his freshman class, and he sat them down to teach them an observation early on in their lives. And he took a two- or three-gallon glass jar that was empty, set it on a table in front of all the students, he took some great big rocks and he filled up the glass jar to the top and he asked the students, is the jar full? And their reply, of course, was yes. So he took some gravel and he put gravel in and he shook the jar up and the gravel made its way around the rocks and he filled it to the tops and he said, is it full now? And they said, yes. So he took sand and he was able to put sand in it, shake it up and it being smaller molecules was able to fit in around the gravel. He said, is it full now? And they said, for sure it's full now. So he poured water. Water was able to go in and filter its way around the sand, the gravel and the rocks and fill it to the top. And 
Finally, there was no room to put anything else. And so the professor asked the students, what's the moral of what I'm trying to teach you? And they said, no matter how full it looks, there's always room for more, isn't there? And the guy said, absolutely not. He said, unless you get the big things in first, it's really tough to do later on in life. Boy, that's true. When I was 21 or 22, I thought that's a good way to live life. Get the big things in early. But here's the problem now. Now I'll be 50 on my next birthday, and there are some things that I still want to see happen in my life that are big things that if I live by that rule, it's too late to get them in. So what do you do when you have some big things you want to put in there and yet the jar's full? Take the jar, turn it upside down, empty it out, and start all over again. How about that? <laughs> so if you find yourself this morning going, man, I can't live by that rule. I've got to find a new way to do new things. I think that's what the announcement is this morning. Fifteen years ago, we started this church. One of the things that I wanted to put in and that I wanted to happen here was the ability for us to connect with each other. I not only wanted to connect you to God, but I wanted to connect you to each other. So we did things like instead of having a mega church, we did campuses trying to keep a big church small. We do small groups and we do dinners for eight and we do all sorts of things. Nate announced that next weekend we're going to have a time where we pull those chairs out, we put tables in, and it's just a time to get to know some of the pastors. And gosh, we're doing as many things as we can to connect people. And yet, I've got to be honest with you, after 15 years, I would say that we've only done a fair job of connecting people, not a great job of connecting people. I need to be honest about that. And so I looked at our situation and I asked, is it too late to do anything about that? And I don't think that it is. I think we need to take the jar, dump it upside down, and we need to start over on some things. So here's what I did. Our situation is that the guy that was handling our small groups, his name is Bob Oldfield, and Bob's done a good job on all our small group stuff, but Bob got a promotion and became our Highlands Ranch campus pastor. And can you imagine being a full-time pastor and trying to do small groups for a church of 3,500 people? What a job the guy had on his hands. So we decided to do this. We said to Bob, where's your heart at? You want to do small groups or you want to be a pastor of your campus? And Bob said, without a doubt, my heart is with my campus. So I said, all right, we've got to find somebody who understands what we're trying to accomplish around here. We don't hire people by titles. We hire them by gifting. So I want to ask those of you on this campus, you go to Lone Tree. Now, you're not a visitor. You go here so you know the pastoral team. Which guy on my pastoral team is the connector more than anybody else. Say his name. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that true? I have done that in all four services that I've taught live, and everybody said the same thing. Terry Hilgers, Terry and Brenda are our connectors. I told Terry one time, if I had to pay you based on the number of people that come here because you love them, I couldn't afford to have you on my staff. And so I went to Terry, and I said, Terry, would you be willing to step away from creative arts? You've done a great job with that. But would you be willing to step away from creative arts? And would you take us back to where we were 15 years ago? Terry, would you empty out the jar? And would you help us get connected to each other? We tried to come up for a title for what we would call that. And Terry said, how about we just call it Pastor of Connect, Grow, Serve? I said, okay, we'll call it Pastor of Connect, Grow, Serve. But really, it's a spiritual formation pastor. And here's what that guy does. He is going to help everybody from the time they drive onto the lot so they get connected in our church. And it's really about spiritual formation and the idea of what do we want it to look like for you and what do we want you to look like after you've been here for a year. Do you want to know what we want you to look like after you've been here for a year? We want you to look more like Jesus. That's what we want. 
We want you to be fully devoted followers of Christ. We want you to grow and mature in that. We don't feel like we've done the best job that we can do. So we're taking our best guy, our best couple, and we're putting him towards that. Tara, jump up here with me real quick. This is... <laughs> Terry came in my office in between services and he says, I'm not sure I can live up to everything that you're saying. And I said, I don't think that's the problem. Um, I think that everybody recognizes the heart, but more than important than I, I think everybody recognizes the gift that's on your life. And we, we bring that, Terry's part of our executive team and we want to elevate this position to an executive team position because we think it's probably one of the two or three things we do that's the most important thing here that we can do. We don't want you just to come here and hear a message and go home and not feel connected. We need you to be connected, folks. So I'm going to ask you for your cooperation. As Terry comes up with different things that will help you to be connected to God and connected to each other, will you help us and jump in? Would you be willing to say it goes beyond listening to a message and beyond just coming to church on a weekend? I want to be connected to people. If you don't, here's what we found happens to people over the years. At some point, you'll go through some crisis or something will happen in your life and you're not going to be connected, and the devil will cause you to drift away. That's what happens. We don't want that for you. We want spiritual growth, and we want longevity. How about you? That's what we want for you. That's what we give this man the charge to do. So we're going to pray for him right now. Can you imagine the job that he's got before him? We're going to pray for him right now. We're going to welcome him when we're done praying, but I want to ahead of time esteem him, and I want to help him that as he comes up with things, please help us by cooperating with what God puts in front of us. So let's pray. Stretch your hands this way and let's agree together. Father, we love Terry. We appreciate Terry. And even for those this morning who don't know him, they were probably greeted by him this very morning as they walked into church. God, if they come back again, for sure, they'll meet him. They'll get a chance to know him. Lord, we just want to say, well done. Thank you for giving him this gift, for giving Brenda to him as a wife who is probably the perfect complement to, to this gift, Lord God. Together, they make such a powerful team, and Lord, they are connectors. We just ask that you elevate that connecting gift in front of this people, that the things they hear from you, they would easily be able to administrate to this church across the campuses, and that they would connect us to you and to each other in deeper, more meaningful ways. Amen. Bless Terry, protect Terry, give him a lot of vision for this job, a lot of energy. Terry's best days are in front of him, so God help him right now to accomplish those things. We pray it together in Christ's name. Folks, let's let him know Amen. how grateful we are to see him do this. Amen. <laughs> All right, let's jump to it. If you'll grab your notes, here's what I wrote down in the intro right there. I want to welcome everybody to our Easter series. Believe it or not, this weekend, next weekend, and then right after that will be Easter. And so we're doing three weekends of our Easter series. We're calling our series this year Prayer pain, and power. The three significant events of the passion are what we're focusing on. Now, if you're new to Christianity, new to church, and you're like, what's the passion? The passion is the name that the church is given for the weekend where Jesus gave his life. You'll know probably from history, if you're not even a believer, you recognize what we consider to be the most significant event in history is not simply the birth of Christ, but it's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus that we hinge everything that we believe on. So we're coming up in our eyes to the most significant event in history two weekends from right now. In my mind, I prepare for those big days by thinking when we get to Christmas and when we get to Easter, we'll see a lot of people come to Christ. 
My daughter, my 21-year-old daughter, my middle daughter came to me last night. She said, Dad, I have a word for you from the Lord. And I said, what is it, honey? And she said, your sights are set too low. You've got your expectation on Easter, but God wants to do big things this weekend, next weekend, and Easter weekend. You need to raise your faith, Dad. <laughs> How'd you like your 21-year-old to tell you that? It's not too bad. So I said to my staff last night, before we began the first service, and we've got, I, I, what is it, 10 services over the weekend or 11, 12 services over the weekend that people will hear this weekend through all of our campuses. I said to all of our campus pastors, we need to raise our sights. Here's what's happened. Just on this campus that I know of, we have given away every salvation packet that we have this weekend so far. We had just this morning 25 people born again just this morning. Last night, somewhere in the vicinity of 40 or 50 on all of our campuses, I received reports of people being born again. Last Easter, we saw 200 people come to Christ. Wouldn't it be great to see double that happen over this three-week time period? And I think that was all God wants is for us to recognize and realize it doesn't happen to happen on a particular weekend. It can happen on any weekend because we serve a God who's alive 52 weekends a year, huh? Not just one. So folks, the three significant events then of the passion, the death and the resurrection of Christ, consider prayer, pain, and power. And today I titled the message, Teach Us to Pray. Just for a moment, let me tell you where I drew those words from. Maybe the most familiar prayer in all of Scripture is the Lord's Prayer. Even if you're not a believer, you know the Lord's Prayer. You've probably heard it. It begins, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But before that prayer is spoken, it begins with these words. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. I would just submit this to you real quick. The disciples could have asked Jesus for anything. How about, Lord, teach us to do the miracles? Can you imagine? Teach us how to turn water into wine. We can make a lot of money with that one. And teach us to take fish and multiply it. That would be a good business. But they don't ever ask him to teach them the miracles. What do they ask him? Teach us how to pray. I want to submit to you this thought. Why ask for that thing? They must have realized that when Jesus prayed, that's where the miraculous things came from. That when Jesus prayed, things happened that didn't happen in ordinary circumstances. There must have been something to the way that Jesus prayed that made the disciples go, I want that. Can you agree with that? I mean, of all the things they could have asked for, teach us to pray. And so Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer. Well, we find another prayer that Christ prayed around the time that he's giving his life, and it's in Luke chapter 22, 39 through 44. Now, you'll find it in your notes. It'll probably come up here behind me. Let me read it to you. It's out of the NIV, and it begins this way. Jesus went out as usual. Let me make the comment to you. This is really important. There's a scripture that says, if all the works of Jesus had been written down, the earth could not contain the volumes thereof. Can you imagine? The Bible is saying if everything that Jesus did had been written down, the earth is not big enough to contain the volumes. Now, I realize that's very, very, um, um, uh, that's flowery speech. But the point being that not everything that Jesus did is contained in the Bible, only the things that the Father considered to be significant. So whenever we, we recognize that we've got a book of all the acts of God that's contained in a way we can carry it around, we have to agree this is a very carefully edited text, right? So every word then is words that are not in there accidentally. They're in there on purpose. And here's what I want to point out to you. If the Bible takes the time to point out, here's what Jesus did usually. That means if you're a believer and Jesus is your model for how to live life, 
This is what you're supposed to do usually. I want you to think for a moment, the Bible will over and over again tell us this was the manner of Christ, or Jesus was used to doing these things. What did Jesus do every day, morning, afternoon, evening, sometimes the Bible would tell us he would usually get away from the crowds and spend time talking to his father, yes or no? That was the manner of Christ. So I want you to pay attention to the wording here because it's significant. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, look at the words, pray. So as usual, he would go out to the Mount of Olives and they would pray. And Jesus said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He then withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and he prayed and here was his prayer. Father, if you are willing, Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, I want to take this small passage of Scripture. I want to pull four things out of it that I think are significant truths for you, but they're not just truths that I want you to mentally ascend to. These are truths I want you to go home and practice in your life today. These are things that you can go home and do. And if you'll do these things, you'll be blessed. How about that? So let me ask the question. Maybe this is the best way. How many of you want to be blessed? If you don't raise your hand, you don't get blessed. Everybody? Okay. So when you hear the message, it's not things to just say amen to. And it's not things just to take notes to. It's things to go home and do today. The first one that I would give you, I just mentioned the as usual. The secret to the success of Jesus is found in his daily habits. Years and years ago, as a young pastor, I read a book that was really important to me. The number one author of leadership books on the New York Times bestseller is a Christian. His name is John Maxwell. But he doesn't write books just for Christians. It goes across the board to believers and non-believers. In other words, you don't have to be a believer to learn things about leadership. You can be a believer or non-believer and learn principles about leadership. John Maxwell said years and years ago, the secret to your success is found in your daily habits. He said, if you would let me spend just a morning with you, I can predict with some accuracy whether or not you're going to be successful in your adventures in life. And I would say to you, here's one of the things that Jesus was successful at, that in the morning and in the afternoon and the evening, at some time, he found time to pray, didn't he? He found an opportunity to spend time with the Father. He found the opportunity to converse with God, to make sure that he was connecting to God. I told the people this morning, this is the truth. You cannot overcome stuff this way in the world until you overcome this way with God. This is going to control you or this is going to control you, but there's no neutrality between the two. Do you get what I mean? All right, how about this? At what point do we quit living by our feelings and our emotions and we allow what God said to be true so that it overrules what happens in this world? I mean, if you're like me, I live in a world that seems to be pretty out of control. Turn on the news tonight and see if this is not true. It begins with good evening and then that's the last good news on the news. (laughs) Yes or no? The rest of it is all bad. Pick up the paper today. 
And it will begin with stories of terrorism. It will begin with, with Iran and Iraq and all the things that are happening all over the world that are scary, yes or no? And then it moves into Washington and it's really scary. Okay, so then we, oh, come on. <laughs> loosen up a little bit. It's a scary world. All right, here's my thought to you. How, how do you not let that stuff be the stuff that controls your emotions? I'm going to tell you, when the pressure this way, is greater than the pressure this way, it controls your emotions. I put down in your notes this interesting thought right here. If you were to say to me, Pastor, you're teaching on the benefit of prayer for you personally, what have you found to be the greatest benefit? I'll give you two things. The first one is peace. When I spend time with God, there is a peace that overwhelms all the other stuff that's going on around me. There is a peace that guards my heart, it guards my mind, it guards my soul. It allows me to be the person that I want to be, not the person that other people want me to be. Maybe the most significant issue, though, is control. And some of you, this is what you think I just said, I pray to control people. No, that's manipulation. We don't pray to control people, we pray so that our emotions are under control. Let me give you an example. Jesus with his disciples, one of the stories you'll find in the gospel, he's in a boat. And the Bible says that a storm blows up on the disciples and the boat is being swamped and it's about to sink and they're freaking out. Where's Jesus? Asleep in the front of the boat on a pillow. Now I got a question. Do you really think he was asleep in the storm? Or do you think he was maybe like one eye open? What are you going to do? What are you guys going to do? I, I'm not sure. I, I just, let me just have a little fun with it. I'm not sure. It says he was sleeping, but how do you sleep in a boat that's doing all that stuff? The disciples go like this. Somebody needs to wake him up and tell him we're about to die. So one of the disciples goes and they scream at him. Jesus, wake up. Just listen, don't you care that we're about to drown? And the Bible gives the text like Jesus gets up slowly and yawns, looks around, stands up, and he speaks to the wind and the waves. Be still and stop. Then he looks at the disciples and goes, where's your faith? I want to say to you, some of us, when we read that passage, here's what we get out of it. Our job in prayer is to wake Jesus up so that he sees the condition of our lives. God, don't you care that I'm about to drown? Don't you see all the stuff going on in my life? Can't you see all the things that are happening? I'm about to go under. Don't you think that the real meaning of that story is this, that the same Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus lives in you and that God's given you authority over the devil so that when the wind and the waves start, it's not just call out to God, but that you have authority to speak to the wind and the waves yourself? Wow, three people this morning. Ooh, what a, what a preacher. Let me try one more time. Do you not think... That the moral of the story is that when the storm starts in your life, it's not so that you can just scream and cry to God, but that literally God's given you authority. Speak to the wind, speak to the waves, tell the devil, you do not have authority to do this to me. Yes. Yeah, oh, sure, now you're excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll take what I can get. Here's the deal. What is it, what is it about a storm that causes things to come out of us that normally don't? I don't know, I don't know about you, but have you ever experienced the fact that sometimes people in this world can bump into you and cause things to come out of your mouth that are not consistent with the fact that you're a believer? 
two, two people here, okay? Uh, I want real people. Anybody in here ever say anything that you wish you could take back? <laughs> I, I did this. Years ago, I was doing a marriage, and I, I took a tube of toothpaste. I said, here's what words are like. I squeezed the whole tube out on a plate. I said, you say things in a marriage, and then you realize, oh, I'm so sorry I said that, and you pick them up, and you try to put them back in the tube. And it makes a mess, yes or no. The problem with words is once you say them, you can't get them back in, can you? And here's the thing that I'm saying. How many of us live our lives, stuff happens, and it ends up controlling us rather than us speaking to the storm? Think of Jesus for a moment. Here's what I said to you. Our desire for you after six months a year is that you begin to look more like Jesus. And that means that when storms happen in your life, you're able to respond like he responded. Think of Jesus. The Bible says that Pharisees and Sadducees would come to him. They would ask him questions, not in order to find out theological answers. They came to ask him questions to trap him. Here's what I want you to think about. Did Jesus ever mishandle one situation? Did he ever speak words that he wished he could have taken back? Even under the pressure of death, he didn't let things come out of his mouth that he wanted to take back later, did he? He was, the Bible says this, the man who can control his tongue is a fully mature individual. How many of you have arrived? How many of you want to arrive? The question then is how do we do that? I'm telling you part of the secret is, you spin connection this way so that this doesn't control you. Did you get that? This is the place that we're supposed to spend our time. There are two troughs you can eat from every day. You can eat from the trough of this world or you can eat from the trough of the Holy Spirit. Either way, you're going to eat. This trough here, the world, it will control the way you think, the way you see, and what you say. The trough of the Holy Spirit will control your emotions. Therefore, it controls what you see, how you hear, and what you say. What's the difference between a person controlled by the Holy Spirit and controlled by their flesh? The Holy Spirit. Yes? Is it possible to be born again and controlled by your flesh? Sure it is. Churches are filled with people like that, aren't they? When do we overcome that? Is it an age issue when you turn 50? So 50-year-olds, answer me. Is it when you turn 60? When you turn 70? When you're 80, right? You're finally there? Doesn't have anything to do with that, does it? It's a spiritual maturity that has to happen to you through a relationship with God. And I submit to you that that relationship is based on the time you end up spending with God reflects how you respond this way to a world. Let me do this then for time's sake. Let me move on to two. I think it becomes more important. Let me talk about the universal prayer. Four things I want to pull out of the scripture. The second one is just the universal prayer. Now this doesn't matter. You could be a Baptist, a Methodist. You, you could be a, a Presbyterian, a Pentecostal, a Catholic. It, it doesn't matter. Here's the universal prayer that every person prays. Tell me if you've never prayed this prayer before. God, if there's any other way, let's take that way. Yeah, it's the universal prayer. Even Jesus prayed that prayer. God, if there's any other way, let's take that way. Okay, I need to be serious with you for a moment. I want you to look at me, quit taking notes. I want you to hear this. Sometimes in life, 
There's not a plan B. Now, I know some of you came to church this morning because you're at your wit's end and you were hoping the preacher had plan B. You're like, can you come up with something real quick? Something besides that. What if there is no plan B? Be straight with me for a moment. What if you've come to something in your life that God's decided you're not going to go over, around, or under, you're going to go through it? What if God looks at the situation and here's his decision? There are just certain things that you're not going to know unless you go through this. How about this? You don't know the faithfulness of God until you've gone something through a great difficulty and God's remained faithful to you. You don't know... You don't know the power of God until you've gone through something that you're out of control with and God has to come along and take control over in your life. You don't know the goodness of God until you've experienced something that is, is horrible and God remains good to you regardless of what the world does to you. There are some things that you're just not going to learn any other way and what if there is no plan B? What if what if God just decided this is the way it's going to be? How about this? There was no plan B for Jesus laying down his life for us. I mean, Jesus prayed it. God, if there's any other way, take the cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. Listen to me. God didn't have plan B for Jesus, did he? Can you imagine had Christ given up at any point during that time, you and I would be forever lost. What if there is no other way except the way through? I remember years and years ago, last night, my whole family sat on the front row. And here's where we are in our life right now. Our children have come to the place where two of them are married. One is handicapped and he lives with us. And the other two, one's at school, college, and the other one is going to youth with a mission. Every once in a while now, we can get everybody together. The older our family gets, the less often we're all able to be together. Anybody like that in your life right now? Some of you have younger families and you're like, I wish I could get rid of them for a little while. Yeah, I know. You know what's going to happen to you? You're going to hit a place where you wish you could get them back. And then when you do, you'll wish they'd go away, but it's still... <laughs> we had all of them together this week. And they were all sitting here last night and I looked down, I looked at my twins, they're 20. The first one when he was born came out whistling Dixie, no problem. The second one went into stress was breached, and before they could get him out, he physically died. I remember the doctors telling me, this isn't good, because even if we revive him, he's been without oxygen close enough now where it's brain damage time. You ever been to a place in your life where you're out of control? I don't mean you're freaking out, and I mean you just realize, I can't do anything about this. No prayer I pray can change it. Nothing I say can undo it. We are where we are, and we're going through. We're not going around. What do you do at that time? You know, here's my deal. See, for years and years, I have to meet with people who are at that place in life. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a hospital and had to comfort somebody who was going to die, telling them, listen, God hasn't abandoned you. God hasn't rejected you. God's promises are still true. Even healing, even if you get healed in this life, it's still temporary healing. Real healing doesn't happen until heaven. I've said that so many times, but I find myself in that place. 
You know what's funny? The only scripture I could remember was a scripture from the book of Job. When Job was going through his trial, this is what Job said to his friends. Even if God slays me, I'll still trust him. That's the only scripture that I hear in my head when I'm looking at my son. And I feel like the Lord says to me, do you trust me no matter what happens? And I was afraid to answer the question. Listen to me. I thought to myself, if I say, yes, I trust you, you're going to take him. If I say, no, I don't trust you, what kind of a believer does that make me? So I found myself backing away. I won't answer the question. And that's what the Lord put his finger on. You are afraid right now. Will you trust me no matter what happens? And I felt like the question really being poised to me is this. Will you serve me even if it doesn't go the way that you want it to go? Let me ask you, if you come to a situation, maybe you're in it right now. You can't change it. You can't get around it. You can't get over it, and God's not pulling you up. What if he says you're going to have to walk through it? Will you still serve the Lord even if you have to go through it? The book of Psalms says, if you're weak in the day of adversity, you're weak indeed. I recognize it's very quiet in here right now. The mind does a lot of funny things. Some of you are like, if I don't say amen, nothing bad can happen to me, right? How many of you know whether you agree with me or not, God will still be God in your life? He will do what he will do because he is God. And if he deems that something in your life has to take place in order for you to draw closer to him or to know him, it will happen. Now, I don't think that God puts sickness on anybody. Don't get me wrong. But I think that God can use everything that happens to us. Do you agree to that? You know, this story has a happy ending. I told the Lord, no matter what, I'm going to serve you. My son ended up, he was healed. God touched him. He's strong. I've wondered if he's brain damaged, but he's not. <laughs> he's not here right now, so I can say that. Get away with it. We can't put this one on the internet. Here's, here's the deal, though. I can't tell you the number of times where I didn't get the miracle. In fact, I can count probably on one hand the times I did get the miracle, and I can't remember how many times I didn't get the miracle. Remember recently a guy, it's a big man, 6465, he got brain cancer, and we believed for God to touch him and heal him. I mean, the guy had faith upon faith. His faith was so strong, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and he'd get weaker, and he'd get weaker, and he'd get weaker. He got to the point where they could pick him up, this big strapping man. They could pick him up and move him from bed to bed. And I would go into his room, and before I'd get in, man, I'd prepare myself, okay, be strong, go in there. You need, to, you need to be strong in your faith for him. And I'd go in there. You know what would happen? He would pump me up. He couldn't talk well, so he'd draw me close. He'd say, come here, I'll tell you something. I'd get near and he goes, I'm getting ready to go see Jesus and I'm really excited about that. And I would weep. Because I would think this, I, I want to see Jesus too, but not right now. <laughs> Anybody? So just be honest with me right now. So I want to get there too, but not, not that quick. And this guy was faced with the reality he wasn't going to get around it. It wasn't that he didn't have faith, and it wasn't that he didn't believe that God was good. In fact, he held on to the fact that God is good all the way through it. Sometimes we need to redefine our definition of good. 
you know, good for many believers. I'm into an area, I didn't do this in any of the other services. I don't know why I'm saying this right now, but I'm going to go with what I feel like the Holy Spirit puts on my heart right now. For many believers, good is like a grandfather. I'm a grandfather right now, six times over. Aren't I the youngest looking grandfather you've ever seen? <laughs> I've got six beautiful grandchildren. And I spoil the snot out of every one of them. They can have whatever they want. We had them to our house two nights ago. Chris put together, we, we did a fondue thing for all the kids because we had them all here. We thought, we, we don't want to go over to the melting pot because it's so expensive, so we'll do fondue at our house. And by the time we got done, it cost us more to do fondue at our house <laughs> than it did to go to the melting pot a lot more. <laughs> and we'll talk about that. So here, <laughs> she goes, oh, well. <laughs> oh. For the little kids, we recognize, man, they're not going to be able to do fun. So Chris and I, Thursday, we went over to Target, and we shopped. For, I don't know how long we shopped for all these little things for them to play with and do. I spent more money on trinkets and toys for my grandchildren to play with so that we could fondue. We got them more stuff. We just spoiled them like crazy, and what a delight it was. They had all this stuff sitting on the table. They had bags that they could play. It was just so cool. Some of us, listen, here's the, here's the moral. Some of us... We say that God is good, and we have in our mind like a grandfather God is good. When we pray, he'll give us whatever we want. God's here just to give us stuff and to make it easy on us and to just bless us. But God has never called our grandfather. He's called our father. And here's the great difference. I have five children that I'm a father to, and I was a way different father than I was a grandfather. With the five that I raised, I never spoiled them because I had to worry about what kind of citizens they were going to be. The Bible says, whom he loves, he disciplines. I don't discipline my grandchildren. That's their parents' job. I spoil them and give them back so that they have something to discipline. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? I tell them yes to whatever they want. I'm, I am that grandfather. I tell them yes to everything. And some of us have defined good that way, that God is good when he gives me everything that I want to. God is good when he disciplines you too. Let me try over here. God is good when he doesn't give you your way. God is good when he looks at your life and he says, this is what you need, not this, and so we're going to do this. That's a good father, yes or no. Dave? You raised some wonderful children. One of them works here for me. He's an awesome young man. He's an awesome pastor. And here's what I know about the two of you. I bet you disciplined your children when they were growing up, didn't you? I bet you made this decision. If we don't discipline now, society will later. Yeah? You didn't want to raise a hoodlum, so you disciplined him, didn't you? And you raised a good kid that gets hired at a church. I love your son. It's one of the best pastors we have. And let me tell you about your son. He does pastoral care like nobody else on my staff. He got an award this last weekend at our all staff for caring for people who are dying. He's got a love in him, and I know that it came from his parents. That didn't happen accidentally. It didn't happen just whatever. Yeah, listen. It happened because two parents loved their son enough to make sure he got what he needed when he was young. That's good. Do you hear me? God is good to you 
even when he doesn't give you everything that you ask for. God is good to you even when he takes you through difficult things. Why I'm spending my time on this, I'm not sure right now, but maybe you're sitting here and theologically you're at this place where the devil's beating you, telling you God is not good because God is making you go through difficult things. God is good to you no matter what the devil says. God is good to you no matter how you feel today. And God will be good to you tomorrow and God will never leave you and God will never reject you and God will never forsake you. Go to the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say this to Nebuchadnezzar. God is able to deliver us from your hand, O king, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow the knee to you. That's what God was asking me. Are you going to bow your knee even if I don't do what you want me to do? And I had to tell him no. What am I going to go back to? I did you a favor when I came to the kingdom? Yes or no? I'm, I'm a preacher and that's done, I've just done you the most magnificent favor, right? No, God saved me from myself. God plucked me out of the world. I told the Lord, what am I going back? I'm not going to serve you. It doesn't matter. I've got nothing to go back to. I burned the ships when I came your direction. I'll serve you no matter what. Can I say to you, your commitment to God isn't tested when everything in your life is easy. The reality of your faith, it's not there if everything in your life is just peachy king. The reality of your faith is tested on the day that you have to answer, God, I don't want to do this, but not my will, but your will be done. You agree with me? The third thing I'd just pull out of your attention would be the idea of ultimate faith. I put this down as important. Not until you've said these words has there been real surrender in your life. Here's the words. Not my will, but your will be done. You may sit here today and think to yourself, Pastor, why would you even teach something like that? Here's what I have learned in my life. The best day of your life will be when you come to the end of yourself. As long as you're still in control, as long as you're still trying to control everything, as long as you're the one guiding your world, then you sit on the throne of your life and God can't. And I want to tell you something about you. You're a miserable person. The point of being a believer and Christianity is this. It's about a king in a kingdom and you're his servant. You're to bow your knee to him and let him sit on the throne of your life. And here's why it's important. You don't experience freedom as a believer until you give up and say, not my will, but your will be done. Until you move your fanny off the throne and tell God you belong here in my life and we're not both going to rule. You're not a happy person. You're trying to control. You probably manipulate everybody around you and you don't even know you do it. Some are like, well, I didn't come here for you to get in my face. I'm here. I just did it. <laughs> You're like, I'm never coming back. Where are you going to go? <laughs> I read an article last week. 83% of evangelical churches in the last year haven't preached on hell, the blood of Jesus, or sin. What are they teaching? How to feel good? 
Want to feel good? Here's feeling good. Get rid of the stuff that buries your soul in yourself. Get rid of the burden on your shoulder. Get rid of the things that hold you down. Go to God and let him take all that from you. Here's the great exchange. He'll take your death and you can have his life. There's the exchange. That's the deal that he offers. And you don't buy it. You can't earn it. Some of you think you're okay because you go to church. And no preacher is doing anyone a favor by letting them think that just because you go to church, you're okay. I'm trying. <laughs> Dude, I am trying. I'm four services in. I'm giving everything I got. Listen to me. What we've got are churches full of cultural Christians. They believe because they make it to church, read their Bible, give some money, everything's good. Listen to me. Jesus wants you to come near what he did for you. He wants you to smell, smell the garden. Taste the fear that he felt. And then apply personally his blood to your life. In the Old Testament, the angel of death, when it came through Egypt, it didn't spare the Hebrews. Only the ones who applied the blood of the lamb to the doorframe of their houses were spared from the angel of death. In the same way, only those who applied the blood of the lamb to your life is spared from death. You're not okay because you go to the right church. You're not okay because you read your Bible. And you're not okay because you can put up with hearing a message. You're okay when you understand what Jesus did and you say he did it for me. I apply it to me personally. I believe it's not mental assent. I don't want you to mentally agree with me right now. I want you to touch it for yourself. I want you to get messy with it. I want you to feel the garden. The intro to this message was me standing in the garden of Gethsemane. The opening scripture that I read to you is that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He stopped and he told his disciples, pray that you don't fall into temptation. And then he went a little further and knelt down and prayed. Where did he go? He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. We go to Israel almost every year. I take all of my folks who go with me to that same garden. There are actually two Garden of Gethsemanes. It used to be one big garden, but they've built a street down the middle of it now and put up two walls. It belongs to one side, the Catholics, and the other side, the Jesuits, which is a branch of Catholicism. The open side, 500 to 1,000 people are in there every time you go. So we take all of our people in there for years, and I try to teach on what Jesus was experiencing in this garden. I want people to taste it and to see it for themselves. But there's so many people in there that they can't even hear me. So one day I walk out of that garden, right across the street is a gate, and I can see the olive trees on the other side of it, and there's a Jesuit in his brown robe standing in front of the gate with a key. And I said to him, what's in there? And he said, it's the other garden of Gethsemane. And I said, who gets in there? And he said, you have to be Catholic to get in here. And I said, how much does it cost to be Catholic for half an hour? <laughs> swear, swear to you. And the guy goes, you give me $100 and you can be a Catholic for an hour. I said, you got a deal, man. I give him 100 bucks. He opens the gate. My whole group goes in there and nobody's in there. I open this story and I begin to teach on what Jesus was experiencing. And the Bible says he was in anguish. 
Why was he in anguish at this point? Because he began to feel the weight of the sin of the world landing upon him right then. The book of Isaiah says that your face is tattooed on the hands of God. Can you believe that Jesus, when he felt that anguish, saw your face when he went through everything that he went through? The Bible says in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. What was the joy? Your face on his hand made Jesus say, I will go through everything I need to go through to redeem your life. And today, here's what's told. Jesus is a way. That is bull. He is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father unless they come through him. I didn't say it. Jesus did. And when people say he is a good man, listen to me. He is a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is Lord, but he is not all three. You can decide. He's not a liar. He himself said, I'm the way. No one comes to the Father except through this gate. Anybody that goes any other way is a thief. Don't be deceived. Don't hear another message. I'm not bashing anybody today. I'm telling you the truth right now, and I'm telling you with great love. I'm telling you with great concern, and I'm telling you right now because I'll have to stand before God and give answer for your soul. And I am more afraid of him than I am of you. Listen to me. I have to give answer to him, and I'm telling you truth right now. He didn't die. Here's the difference between Christianity and every religion. Christianity is not religion. It's relationship. Everything else points to what you have to do to be right in front of God. Christianity is God's attempt to make himself available to you. God reaches down from heaven through Jesus and says, You can't help yourself, so I'll do it for you. I'll make the way back to me if you'll trust me, if you'll believe in me, if you'll put your faith in me, if you won't go out and try to do it any other way, but trust me, I'll make the way possible. You may go back to anything else in life after you hear this message, but hear me right now while you're here. Jesus is not just a good man. He is the son of God. He was God's plan for redemption And this whole story hinges on that fact right there. Jesus is not in agony because he's going through a bad day. The weight of the sin of the world is being pressed down upon him, and it gets worse after this. Next week, the book of Hebrews says this, It pleased the Father to bruise the Son so that peace would be made through his blood by his cross so that in our minds we would no longer be alienated from God, but friends with him. That's the message I'm going to teach next week. We're friends with God. But you need to hear this first. What makes us friends is that we come to God in the first place and say to him, be merciful to me. I want to be your friend. Jesus died universally for every person that ever lived, but it's applied personally when a person says, I want that in my life. Do you hear me? No one in this room will ever be able to say you weren't told. No one in here will not be able to say you weren't told just now. He died universally, but it's applied personally. You know, I'm out of time. I can finish or I can close right now. What would you like? The people that are hating this are like, whoa. Why didn't you say close? Let me give you the meaning of Gethsemane and then I'll be done. 
Gethsemane in Hebrew means oil press. Everything that God did was so precise that everything has a meaning. Jesus didn't stop on the Mount of Olives. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane because Gethsemane is oil press. This was spoken to a culture that understood olives and olive oil like we don't. Everything in the Mediterranean is about that stuff. We live in America and it's not about that. We live 2,000 years later and there's some cultural things that are lost in translation. If you go to the store, King Super, Safeway, wherever you shop, and you were to buy olive oil, what's the best olive oil you can buy? Not name brand, but what's the kind? Extra virgin. Then the second kind that you can buy is virgin. And then you can buy olive oil. The way that they got the extra virgin in that day was to take burlap sacks and they would wet them and just lay them on the olives. The olives were so ripe that they would leak under the weight of burlap. And that original oil that would come out was the sweet oil and that's the extra virgin. Then they would lay more weight on it and you would get the virgin. Then they would take it and put it in a press and you'd get the olive oil. But when they were done getting the oil out of it, they would take what was left and they would crush it in a mill. And when they would crush it, it would produce a nutrient, a, an ingredient, whatever you want to call it, called pomace. Some of you grew up in the day I grew up, and you remember lava soap? Lava soap had pumice. Do you remember pumice? Pumice would clean your hands like nothing else would, wouldn't it? They pulled that from the idea of pomace. From the pomace, the ancients would create a soap that would clean like nothing else would. Can you imagine God sending Jesus to Gethsemane? And the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that he was crushed, not bruised, not treated badly. He was crushed for our iniquity. God poured out his wrath of our sin upon Jesus. Jesus got what we deserved so that we could have what he deserved. Jesus was made a cleansing agent that when you apply to your life, it scrubs your soul clean. It doesn't cover over your sin. It takes away your sin. Do you understand? Do you get it? He's the cleansing agent. What else in all of earth offers that? Everything else offers your ability to be good to God. Pray enough, read enough, give enough. Go to church enough, memorize enough. The only thing on earth that offers the answer to you is God. I'll do it for you because you can't do enough. Okay, I'm done. You stayed an extra six minutes and 54 seconds. I'm sorry I made you pay such a high price for hearing a message. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want you to do. If you've never said to God, You've never prayed, be merciful to me. You've never said, God, forgive me of my sins. You've never said, God, it's not that I just simply believe, but I apply it to my life. I didn't ask you if you believe in God. I'm asking you if you're experiencing God. I'm not asking you if you know about God. I'm asking you if you're in a relationship with God. Be honest with me right now. And the truth is you don't owe me an answer because I'm not your judge and I'm not your jury. I'm your pastor. There's a world of difference between those two things. 
This is between you and God only, and I'm going to facilitate only on his behalf in a moment the opportunity for you to come into relationship with him. If you've never prayed that, I'm going to pray in just a second, and I'm going to give you a chance to respond. Now, here's a promise I'm going to make to you. If you respond to me, I will not embarrass you. I will not use you. I will not manipulate you. I will not make you stand up. I will not make you come down here and meet me. I will not make you go anyplace. That if you say in your chair, Pastor, when you pray today, remember me in your prayers because I need that in my life, then I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to help facilitate between you and God peace right now. But I want you just to simply allow this to soak into your head for a minute. And I want you to think, do I need that? Is that what God is saying to me this morning? Again, I didn't ask you if you believe in God. I didn't ask you if you go to church. I asked you if you've ever said to him, God, I get it. Apply it to my life. God, I'm a sinner and I need your mercy. God, I'm lost without you. Help me. And if that's you this morning, then let's take a moment and pray. Would you pray with me? So God, for every person right now at every campus, Lone Tree, Castle Rock, Lakewood, Highlands Ranch, you're all listening right now. doesn't matter where you hear the message at. So maybe you're live streaming at your house. Maybe you're listening to it by CD and you're hearing it a week later. I don't know. It doesn't matter where you are when you hear the message, but it matters what's going on in your heart right now. What's God saying to you? Here's what I know. You know in your heart if you need to do this. The Holy Spirit's already speaking to you. I'm not asking you to join our church. I'm not asking you to get religion. I'm not asking you to be good. I'm asking you if you need the mercy of God. I'm asking you if you get it. I want to be specific. Listen to me. If you've never prayed this before and you want to pray right now, God, be merciful to me. God, forgive me. God, help me. Then I want to facilitate a prayer on your behalf. Here's what I want you to do. If that's you, I want you just to raise your hand right now. Just pray for me, John. Yep, I see you. There's a lot of you. Raise your hand. Just pray for me this morning. You've got them. You can put them back down. There, there were more of you than I could count. I'm, I just, I'm not belaboring it. I'm just going to ask. So if you just say, man, I wish I was in on that prayer. You were afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yeah, I see you. Don't be afraid. God is good. He's not mean. He's not harsh. He's good. It's the last time I'll ask. Anybody else, just pray for me. Sure. Yep. 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 Okay. Here's what I want to do. I'd like all of you, all of you, all of our campuses, I want you all to pray this prayer with me. I want to make it as easy as possible for those who responded to come into the kingdom this morning. Would you all just pray with me? Just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, 
I approach you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. I need your mercy. I want your grace. I apply it to my life. I believe you. In Jesus' name. I want you to hear me. There's nowhere in the Bible that gives us a formula prayer to pray for salvation. The Bible says this, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When you prayed that this morning, if you met that, God heard your prayer, and I promise you this, he is merciful, he forgives you, Heaven goes into a celebration, the Bible says. If you could see, if you could just see. God loves you so much. If you meant that prayer this morning, I want you to do me this favor. When you leave our auditorium at any of our campuses, you're going to find people standing at our exits, and they're holding on to envelopes, and it'll be very obvious. I've got to put the impetus back on you because nobody marked where you were when you raised your hand. Nobody was looking. Nobody was hunting you down. There's no way for us to know. I said that I wouldn't embarrass you, and I meant that. So I've got to put the impetus back on you. If you meant it this morning when you prayed that prayer, on your way out of here at our exit, the individuals holding those envelopes have inside of the envelopes how to have a relationship with God. Now, why is that important for you to get? The only way I can explain it Forgive the simplicity of it, but it's, it's, it just it comes across this way. So my wife sits right up here. This December, we'll be married 30 years. 30 years ago when we got married, we didn't say I do, and then she went to her house, and I went to my house, and then we meet up on the weekends and say hi to each other. We moved in together, and we began to learn how to have a relationship, one that's grown in intimacy, one that's grown in depth, one that's grown in width, one that's grown in so many ways, and it happens day by day. Here's the deal with God. You don't pray a prayer, and then you see him on the weekends. Every day you have a chance to know him, and he offers you relationship. And that's why I want you to get that information. It'll be the most important stuff you can read in the next three or four days. The people that hand it to you, they won't do anything to you. There's no radio tracking device inside there where we can follow you. Nothing. nothing. So I'm being facetious, but I'm telling you the truth. If you want to talk to them, they'll talk to you, of course, but they're not there to harass you. They're there to help you. They'll give you that information, but you've got to go grab it. That's all that we ask you to do. Our contact info's in there. If you have any questions, we'd be happy to help you in any way that we can. We'll facilitate anything that we can for you if you need it. But I've got to put the impetus back on you to grab that right there. For the rest of you, here's what I'd like you to do. Would you stand to your feet? Pastor Nate will come right now. The rest of our worship pastors close out our service. You can take communion. Use all of our elements this morning if you'd like to. Whatever you need in order to connect to God, it's here this morning. But if you did pray that prayer and you meant it this morning, make sure and stop and get that information.